0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. This is Sam Stern, joined as always by Jenny Wise. Hi, everyone. And we are back this week for part two of our conversation with Jeff Gotholt about the concepts in his book, Sense and Respond. Jeff, in last week's conversation, we were just starting to scratch the surface talking about the implications for how employees would have to think and work differently. I think you made two very important points just to reiterate in this week's conversation. One was that we're gonna have to get much more comfortable as leaders, but probably all people involved with a sense and response sort of process of being comfortable with not knowing the answers and really putting something out there where our certainty is much lower than maybe we were fooled about it, but that we thought it was in the past. And two, that as leaders, we really have to get away from giving orders and being very directive to our teams and our employees about what they're gonna do and step back from that to say, we're going to set a broader vision, we're going to create guardrails, but in large part, we're leaving this to the team to do the work. We're leaving it to their judgment, we're empowering them, and we're empowering them partly through this sense-and-respond process to get to the right answer. So we'd love to hear from your point of view, how does this play out when you try to implement this organizational-wide? How do employees have to sort of think and work differently to make a sense-and-respond approach effective inside of an organization?
1: So you would think that when you grant employees, empowerment, authority, and a bit of control over what they work on and how they work on it, that all of them would embrace it broadly. The reality is that some do, some really love it, and then some don't. Some people just simply want to be told what to do and again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that I, I, I don't i don't mean i don't mean to mention to say that in any kind of a negative context, but there are people who will embrace this way of working, and there are people who will not and and they will simply say Look, I, I, I all this extra stuff is fun I, mean, I just want to write code or I just want to design something or I just want to write copy right don't don't bother me with this stuff if you're an organization that recognizes the realities of modern business and you're going to employ whatever flavor of sense-and-respond, agile, continuous learning, and improvement model, you are going to start to have to favor and optimize your processes for the people who embrace this way of working. And you'll need to create hiring profiles that reflect the characteristics that are required for this way of working. Things like curiosity, humility, the ability to you know, continuous self-improvement. Those are the kinds of qualities that we want to look for in the people who thrive in these types of environments. And the question becomes, well, what do we do with the folks who don't? Let me tell you a story. A few years ago, I did a training with Victoria's Secret in Columbus, Ohio. I spent five days out there leading a workshop with 80 people. Now, one of the key components of that training that we did was we were going to go and talk to customers. To be specific, we were going to go talk to women about how they like to shop for clothing in general for the kinds of clothes that Victoria's Secret sells. And we were going to do this in an unstructured way, in a guerrilla kind of way. We're going to go out into the, the streets, the malls, the coffee shops, and talk to strangers about how they do their clothes shopping now i had 80 people in this class i show up on the day that we were going out to talk to customers and the stakeholder in charge of the training pulls me aside and he says jeff we have a problem and i said what's the problem and he said i have 15 back-end engineers software engineers threatening to quit if they have to go talk to customers today wow (laughs) wow yeah that's what i said (laughs) i guess at least we know where they
0: stand right we know they were unwilling if they're ready to quit over it
1: so i said. I thought they were just starting to quit the workshop, but it turns out they were starting to quit their jobs but to walk okay. out that day. I was stunned. I, I was, I had no idea what to do. I'd never been faced with a situation like this. But the reality was this: they were, you know, database administrators. They were, you know, data scientists. That sort of thing. They, they were the kind of folks who really enjoyed working by themselves, or you know, with kind of with their headphones on, buried in the technology. And that's what they enjoyed. And, and again, nothing wrong with that at all. That's their job. Now, the thing that they failed to connect was how the work that they were doing would impact the customers using the e-commerce platform that they were working on. So, for example, if you write database schemas, you know, or architect the data for a search engine, right, an e-commerce search engine, then those search results are what comes up to the to the people who shop on your site. And if you don't understand how those people think about your product catalog, you're just going to make stuff up and assume that it works. Now, the reality is that these folks were actually just terrified of the idea of going down to the streets and talking to women about how they buy lingerie and sportswear and that type of thing. And as an opportunity to speak to the organization in this particular case, this was a teaching moment. And this said, look, you are thinking about changing the way that you work into this customer-centric, send-and-respond, agile way of working. These are the kinds of practices that take place to enable this way of working. Not everybody is going to come with us on this journey. And so we need to decide what to do with the folks who won't come with us on this journey. Now, I'll tell you how the story ended because I know you're you're super eager. The bottom line is nobody quit, which was great. What we ended up doing was we sent those back-end engineers out into the field as note takers. So they went out, a partner who was absolutely comfortable approaching strangers in a cafe or in the mall and asking them about their shopping habits, and they didn't have to say a word. They just listened and they took notes. So they were exposed to the customer in real time, they heard the conversation firsthand, but they didn't have to actually participate in the conversation itself, which was great. They were super happy to do that, they got a lot of value out of it, and ultimately we managed to convince them that this was a valuable part of their job. And so as an organization, you really have to think through, look, I'm not advocating for the mass firing of people who don't want to work this way. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is let's figure out ways to involve them in customer discovery and exposures to the customer in ways that they're comfortable doing and that help inform the work that they're doing. Maybe they sit in the call center and they listen to calls for a couple of hours every, every month. Anything we can do to bring folks along so that they can see the value of this work and ultimately use it to do better work and to participate in the process is a win.
0: Yeah. And I think you articulated both sides of that balance equation, right? That get them involved in the sensing in a way that they're comfortable with. And so I think I love the idea of just as note takers, okay, I'm there. I don't actually have to interact. And in fact, I'm better off not interacting with that customer as we're interviewing them because I need to keep up with my notes. And second, you want them to see that the insights they're getting are valuable to their work. Obviously then the value equation feels right to them. I'm taking this time. I'm doing something that maybe is a little uncomfortable to me, but there's such benefit from it that It's worth doing. That's the key. They're terrified of this because it's a non-standard
1: activity for their job description as it was written when they were hired but that job description is changing. They're not familiar with this way of working. They don't like it. They they don't know how to do it. They're going to resist. And so the easier that we can onboard them, the more likely they are to come aboard and and stick with it.
0: So the engineers taking notes, you know, listening in a call center, those are more passive ways, I I think, of being involved in the the sense and respond process. And so It sounds like that's okay. I was going to ask you if that's okay to sort of be a more passive participant, but then I'm wondering how do you ensure that they take that second step, right? That they aren't just listening or they aren't just capturing notes, but that they are filtering that back in. I mean, how does it work in a day-to-day employee's life to actually take the insights that they sensed and respond to them?
1: The main benefit of participating in these processes, in these sensing activities, is the shared understanding that the team is building. So, one of the challenges for me in my career has been convincing the people who did not participate in any kind of sensing customer discovery activities that something actually happened and that something is actually true. Mm-hmm. The benefit, and I've I, I burned. So many hours of my career doing that, and it, it was wasted, right? U- ultimately waste of time that could have been avoided had we all done this work together. The more that we do this work together, the more the whole team understands how the product that we're delivering meets customer expectations and delivers value and allows us to capture that value back and where it's failing to do that. And what that allows us to do is it, it cuts out that intermediate conversation of someone having to convince somebody else on the team that something is true and important important. And instead, we can have a far more productive conversation around what are we going to do about it, right? You saw it, you heard it, we all did. What are we going to do about it? It's a far more interesting conversation than let me tell you customers hate this. Well, how do you know? What did you see? What did you hear? Maybe you didn't test it right. That is a waste of time. And so, the more that we can get people participating in these sensing activities, the more shared understanding there is about the reality of the value or lack thereof that we're delivering, and the sooner we can get get to the far more interesting response side of the conversation, which is, what are we going to do?
2: Yeah, and that's a good point that you just made too. And I know this is something that we we hear and see a lot too. There's one thing to do, to do the research, to understand the user, to go through all the steps, but then the ability to share that knowledge across the organization, get buy-in, right? Make sure that it's been packaged in a way that everyone can understand and agree with it can be so much work. And it can almost make some of that customer understanding work unapplicable because people won't be on board with it.
0: Part of what they're communicating uh, is their design, their product. Right, because
2: they are invested <laughs> And what it yeah. is that they're working on. And something else too is that they've come to the table with their own, you know, assumptions, whether they've acknowledged that or not, about what is important mm-hmm. and what the customer is doing. And so this is a way to overcome those assumptions without it having a well, you say this, but I see this. It's well here's here's what the customer saw, right? right. And we were all in this right. together.
1: Yeah, you just you just basically described the first ten years of my career. Like right? convincing people that the customer said that the product wasn't great. I look back on that time and, and think about all that wasted
2: effort. But that's what people are still going through today. This is a much needed way of doing it. But when we're thinking about these activities, there's sort of one way when we're thinking about how you democratize this way of thinking across the organization. One approach is, well, let's make everyone a customer researcher, right? Everyone should be there. Everyone should be talking to customers. And that's an important step to do so that everyone builds this empathy. But it's also worth saying that it doesn't have to be everyone becomes the researcher or the designer. Instead, it's just everyone is included in the journey so that they feel like they've participated and can see the results and outcomes of those conversations while there can still be be people doing different roles and different activities with different degrees of expertise in that customer process. Is that something that you agree with? Because I guess we often hear, you know, should everyone be a designer or is it okay if the designers are still the designers as long as they're including everybody else?
1: The reality is I, I do agree with the way that you put it. When I teach, when I consult, when I coach, when I speak, no one freaks out faster than the researchers immediately. Yeah. They're like, no way. Like that. And, and uh, you can't have... Developers talking to customers, they don't know what to ask and it won't be, you know, it won't be done right and they'll ask leading questions. And you're right, they're going to suck at it at first. And and then they'll get a little bit better at it, right? And no, they will not be researchers, but they will be participating, like you said, in these sensing activities and these customer discovery activities. You, the expert researcher, can help them structure those conversations and their practice in such a way that they can be more effective when they do participate in these activities. And you, the researcher, or you, the designer, can then do your job synthesizing that work and bringing together to light all the findings and the conclusions of the next steps that we should take forward. But we should absolutely not exclude our colleagues who simply don't carry the title researcher or designer from these activities. That's absolutely critical.
0: One of the other things that came up as part of sort of how employees need to work differently is sort of the idea of being more aware of the assumptions you're making. I think we go through our entire life making assumptions, guessing how we're going to feel in the future, and that's sort of an assumption. But the importance of articulating your assumptions, being aware of them. And I'm wondering, what is the best way to do that, to sort of surface assumptions and have them be something that we can talk about without it making us sound like we're assuming too much or make it sound like we've jumped ahead of the process, so to speak?
1: Exercises that you can facilitate with teams, with groups of people who work together to visualize what's going on inside their head. That's the key. So the key is to get those ideas out from people's heads and visualize in a way that everybody can see. Because as soon as people can see the thoughts of their colleagues, like to, to, to literally see them on post-it notes, in sketches, on whiteboards, you know, in, in whatever manner get them out the fastest, they can start to actually understand that there's a variety of points of view where we believed earlier that we were all aligned. And so exercises like uh, affinity mapping is a great way to do that. Um, creating proto personas together. So it's just simply having a team get together and Catch together who they believe the customer is based on their insight, their data, their, their experience and expertise and looking to see where the gaps in shared understanding are and then reconciling them through conversation. So anything you can do to visualize the assumptions that your colleagues have goes a long way. And you've heard of some of these exercises, again, proto-personas, affinity mapping, design studios, or what they call crazy eight, where people simply kind of draw what's in their head and then they share it and then they look around. All of those activities, get ideas out of people's heads and in front of their colleagues, or we can say, wait a minute, you think that's the customer? I mean, look, I'll tell you another story. I used to work at a company called The Ladders in New York, and I ran a proto-persona sketching exercise with the eight executives who ran that company. It was a day-long, maybe day-and-a-half-long session. The eight executives in that organization had created 21 different personas for who they believed the customer was. Right. Wow is exactly right. You can't build a product for 20. First of all, that aren't 21 personas, right? <laughs> and second of all, what's highlighted is the lack of shared understanding and alignment in that executive team. You basically had every executive pulling the organization in a separate direction because they believed that their assumptions were true. And so that's a fantastic way to start to get those ideas out of people's heads and reconciling the differences.
0: Yeah. I love that example because I think you're exactly right. Now staring us in the face are 21 different versions of the customer that we realized we were all working off of as the one true version of the customer. That's a pretty profound insight for those folks to have. I find this with some of the research that we do here, that in our personal lives, you can apply some of these methods. So I'm I'm wondering, do you find yourself using Sense and Respond in your personal life? How does that play out?
1: So the short answer is yes. I live my life this way because there is a lot of risk. I'm I'm married, I got kids, you know, and if we're going to make any kind of significant decisions, big or small, how do we do risk those decisions? So, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, I live in Barcelona at the moment. That was a big life change. I carried a lot of risks. My kids aren't little. Uh, My daughter is high school age, my older one, my younger one will be high school age soon enough and we wanted to move to Europe, but we didn't know where. We had a series of assumptions about what we thought was great and it turns out by visualizing those assumptions that my wife and I had very different points of view about what would be is a big fan of the Northern European climate and style. So think UK, Ireland, Scotland, you know, beautiful green rolling hills, gray skies, cold rain, you know, mossy castles, that kind of thing. I, on the other hand, envisioned uh, the Mediterranean beaches and sun and palm trees and warm days, which is sort of drastically different. And so to de-risk had implications for each of us personally, the kids, and ourselves as, as a family, plus my business, and so forth, we ran experiments, we went and collected data, we sensed where we might want to live, and we did that by taking the kids for a month each summer over the course of four years, getting an Airbnb in a country that we thought we might want to live in, and living there for a month. Look, the circumstances were ideal. Right. It's summertime, there's no school, there's very little work, um, the weather should be as good as it's ever going to get. But we were living there, you know, we had to do laundry, and We had to go to the store, and We had to go to the coffee shop and, 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 and deal with the culture and deal with, you know, every now and again, we deal with a variety of different things. And so, and that result was that we collected data running these experiments and we ended up picking Spain based on the evidence that we had collected from our experiments ultimately. And it turns out that 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 worked out pretty well for us, you know, that we we, we like it here and things are going well. So absolutely, I use this in my day-to-day
0: life. That's great. I love, you know, using one of the best examples of sort of a, um, you know, company that's sensing and responding Airbnb to facilitate your Sense and Responding, for, <laughs> for moving your family to the right part of Europe. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Really fascinating conversations. And the book that we've been talking about, Sense and Respond, listeners, as I am uh, bold disclosure, three quarters of the way through it. Not quite done, but it is a really fascinating read with lots of great examples of how companies are applying this. I think, Jeff, you do a really good job of the question, the challenge that you and your co-authors set for yourselves is well, how do we make this work at a company-wide level there's a lot of really good examples and evidence and suggestions for how you do that in this book listeners thank you for joining us we'll talk to you all on next week's episode goodbye for now thanks to our colleagues amanda chen for recording and mixing the episode and we'll will see for editing and publishing and listeners, if you have questions, feedback, comments, or suggestions for new episodes, please email us at CXCast And remember, your customers' perceptions are your customer experience reality.